Now today, uh, we're going to be talking about World War I, and specifically uh, the ways in which World War I changed America. And I think it changed America profoundly. Uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, I, was, I was asked on an exam once uh, to choose between World War I and World War II as the uh, event that changed America most. Uh, and at the time, I, wrote, I decided to write the essay about World War II uh, because I thought it changed it even more than World War I. But I've since uh, come to uh, believe that World War I actually changed America and the world, I think, uh, uh, most profoundly. Uh, and if I had been more logical during that time, I would have known, obviously, uh, no World War I, no World War II. So which is more important? In any case, the World War I years uh, brought out what was best and worst in America and Americans uh, on the battlefields of Europe. Over 100,000 Americans died for a vision of democracy, equality, and national self-determination that was the essence of the highest ideals of what the United States had to offer, epitomizing our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address. To win World War I, Americans worked with each other to an unprecedented extent. They cooperated in economic matters. They bought war bonds to the tunes of millions of dollars, putting their money where their mouths were in a literal sense, as they literally paid for the war out of their own pockets. A war, moreover, that involved the physical safety, remember, of other people, not Americans. The United States mainland, after all, was never in serious danger during World War I. Now, putting the bodies of your soldiers on the line when the direct survival of your country is not at stake for the ideals of democracy and freedom for other people is, I think, about as selfless an act as... One can imagine, and one that few countries besides the United States would ever even consider. So, the war brought out much that was noble uh, uh, and good in the American people. But, as wars so often do, it also brought out what was low and cruel in the American people. World War I let the suspicious, angry, dark underside of the American character out of the closet. The bigoted part that was prejudiced against foreigners in general and Germans in particular. The insecure part that viewed any criticism of the war as a threat to the survival of the nation. The racist part that questioned the courage and the fighting ability and even the manhood of black soldiers and then attempted to further marginalize them when they returned home at war's end. So, World War I and the World War I years cannot be characterized as either good or bad, because they were both. And they revealed America as both idealistic and cynical, generous and cold-hearted, broad-minded and suspicious. But one thing that we can say with absolute certainty about World War I is that it changed America. The very act of preparing for war, of fighting the war, 
and recovering from the war, set in motion forces that propelled America into the modern age, into modernity, and provided a vision and a blueprint for the nation during the rest of the 20th century, and in many respects for the nation that we live in today. In many ways, it might even be argued that the modern era in American history began in 1917 with America's entry into World War I. And to take it a step further, although the 20th century began chronologically, of course, in 1900, it may have begun thematically with America's entry into the war in 1917. Dates, after all, are constructed by humans for their convenience to mark time and often have little to do with the actual events of history. One might make a good argument, for example, that the 1960s began not in 1960, but in 1963, when JFK was assassinated, and ended not in 1970, but in 1973, when uh, America's direct involvement in the war in Vietnam ended, or even in 1974, when Richard Nixon resigned. In any case, what kind of changes in American society, American politics, American life, did World War I bring about, or at least set in motion? Well, for one thing, it at least partially realized the progressive vision of government, and especially the federal government intervening in the national economy, and in some cases, even running that economy. Through a series of wartime agencies, bureaucracies, set up to manage wartime production, wartime food distribution, and wartime labor relations, and wartime public relations. If progressives thought that the experts should be running things in America, they certainly got their wish in 1917 and 1918, uh, while America was in World War I. The war brought some of the most brilliant and creative men in America out of the private sector uh, and into government service. Bernard Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H, America's greatest financier, Uh, was put in charge of coordinating industrial production for the war. Herbert Hoover, perhaps America's greatest engineer at the time, and of course a future president about which we'll have more to say, uh, took over the task of publicizing and popularizing uh, 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 the food production and distribution apparatus in the United States to get food over to Europe and to get Europeans to know that food was available to them. Uh, he came very close to winning like the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for, you know, for doing that. George Creel, C-R-E-E-L, uh, a leading journalist, uh, took over the task of selling the war effort to the American public and convincing them to finance the war by buying bonds through basically their own pockets. Now, most of these experts left the government uh, after the war. Bernard Baruch, incidentally, to become a multi-zillionaire on Wall Street. Uh, he was once asked uh, his secret of investing, uh, and he sort of, sort of, you know, like, like he was going to tell somebody a secret, and then he says, buy low, sell high. That's his secret. Now, the rest of the government agencies, or most of the government agencies that they, uh, uh, that they headed uh, uh, were dismantled. Uh, But these agencies had set an actual real-world precedent 
of, in government, of government involvement in and running of the American economy, as well as, to a great extent, the American economy itself, uh, uh, that the nation would draw upon uh, during the New Deal, during World War II, and especially the years after 1945, which we'll be talking about. In fact, much of what we take for granted today in terms of federal agencies regulating the American economy and even planning that economy uh, 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 and experts in American government, for better or for worse, telling Americans what to do, came, as we said on Monday, from the progressives. But it was only during World War I that this progressive idea of expert regulation of production and distribution and wages and prices and labor relations was actually attempted, not just by laws and not just in theory, but by men. And America, especially America after 1945, would rely heavily on their example. Now, a second and related change uh, uh, in American life that World War I brought about, in my view, was what I call rationalization. Now, we all know what the word rational means. If only because somebody, somewhere, has told each of us that we were being irrational, right? The opposite of rational is irrational. Rationalizing means to standardize, to systematize, to uh, make things efficient, to do something the same way every time. That's rationalization. And this is what America began to become during World War I, rationalized. And, of course, it is not surprising that this would happen, because having to fight in the biggest war in human history uh, will do that to a nation. It will make it rationalized. During World War I, under the government agencies that I just referred to uh, that coordinated the economy, the United States learned to produce things quickly, expeditiously, in large quantities, and on time. And not only did the wheels of the American economy spin more precisely and more efficiently, I think it's fair to say that all aspects of American life, communications, transportation, the family, uh, local government, they began to spin more precisely and in a more rationalized way, too. America as a whole, then, became more efficient and rationalized during World War I. And along with this, it became more impersonal, an unavoidable accompaniment of rationality. When products are produced the same way, people start to imitate machines. Remember our reference to Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. And this combination of rationality in production and impersonality in American life would eventually, by the 1950s, 60s, and beyond, create what we came to call mass society. And we live today in a mass society. A society in which our material needs are provided for by rational production techniques, but a society which is so efficient and so large and so impersonal that we wonder where we fit in, whether we have any individual identity at all. This is mass society, and it can trace many of its roots to the rationalized, rationalization, ra rational, ration, well, the rationalized society that World War I gave America or began to give America. Now, of course, 
we know that America did not suddenly just become rationalized in 1917 and 1918, that this did not happen uh, overnight. As we discussed earlier, many of the trends that would help rationalize America during the World War I years were already in motion before it. The assembly line, Henry Ford's great contribution to American industry, was already in existence. The principles of scientific management that we talked about, the manufacturing process that Frederick Winslow Taylor popularized, was also already in existence. Urbanization, of course, was already going on. The rise of a national mass media. Remember the yellow journalists that helped cause the Spanish-American War in 1898. Uh, they were all predating World War I. But it took World War I, it took this global war and the demands that it placed on American society to bring all these forces together, to crystallize them, so to speak, and make the rationalization of America possible during this time and a permanent part of the American economic, political, and cultural landscape. And finally, the third way in which uh, World War I changed the United States, I think is pretty obvious. It made America, whether it was completely ready for this or not, a world leader and an active participant in the affairs of that world. Now, once again, uh, uh, this position of global leadership, uh, or the beginnings of global leadership, did not spring up overnight in America. Wednesday's class, after all, was almost entirely devoted to America's attempt to obtain a seat at the table of world leadership through its own peculiar brand of imperialism. But it took World War I to truly thrust the United States to the head of that table that it was just sitting at after the Spanish-American War. It's one thing, of course, to fight minor powers like Spain or even guerrilla wars against Filipino nationalists. These were confined engagements. And it was one thing to dominate various nations in the Caribbean, in Latin America, in Asia, economically, as we saw the U.S. do. But it was another thing entirely to fight in the biggest war in human history. And in one, moreover, that in which America held the key to victory for both sides. The allies in World War I, uh, uh, Great Britain, France, uh, Italy, and until 1917, Russia, because they needed America to come into the war on their side, and the central powers who opposed them, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey, because they needed America to stay out of that war. America's decision as to whether to enter World War I would, in effect, decide that war. And moreover, even before America entered the war, its loans to and armaments and, you know, and food shipments to Great Britain and France had put the United States in the position of constituting a lifeline to those countries, without which these countries could not continue the war. And thus, by occupying this crucial military position, being at the center of this balance of power, by becoming this arms and goods supplier, and perhaps most importantly of all, this creditor, America, almost in a stroke, 
became the player on the world stage that many of its leaders had hoped it would become. Now, there's a saying in life, not necessarily in history, but it applies there too, be careful what you wish for because you may get it. Who's heard of that? Okay. Remember it, it's very wise. And there were many times during and after World War I, even up to this day, that many Americans wished out loud that the United States did not have to bear the burden of this world leadership role, that it could once again retreat into the isolation that had characterized it throughout the 19th century. But, although there have been brief periods of relative American isolation in the years after World War I, uh, the 1920s, which we'll be talking about next Friday, come to mind, World War I really thrust the United States onto the world stage in a permanent way, giving it both the advantages and the burdens. And many American imperialists uh, of the early part of the century just thought of the advantages, uh, as human beings are wont to do, uh, of that leadership position on the world stage. And from 1917 on, American presidents, from Woodrow Wilson to Franklin D. Roosevelt to John F. Kennedy to Lyndon Johnson to Ronald Reagan to George Bush have all accepted that world leadership role with all of its implications. A role that was born out of the military necessities and political imperatives of World War I. So, to summarize, the ongoing legacies and effects of the World War I years in American life were, first, the active involvement of the federal government in the economic system, the political life, and the culture of the nation. Two, an increasingly rationalized American society, and three, a position of global leadership and world leadership for the United States uh, that continues to this day. Now, to discuss World War I itself. World War I, in my view at least, was one of the most preventable and needless wars in human history. It was basically a war about world domination. It grew largely out of a naval rivalry between Great Britain and the newly formed nation of Germany, and a quest for colonies between the various European countries, especially in Africa. It was caused directly by a rupture in the balance of power in Europe, an intricate system of alliances that arrayed groups of countries against each other, uh, which actually, to its credit, had prevented a major world war for almost 100 years, but this balance of power uh, broke down. It also came out of bruised national pride, especially French national pride, because in 1871, France had lost a war disastrously uh, to uh, the newly formed state of Germany and had lost significant amounts of territory in that war, the Alsace-Lorraine region, which borders, uh, 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 which is on the French-German border. And for literally 40 years after that, French school children were taught, uh, uh, I guess the French word is revanche, uh, a revenge against Germany. So there's a lot of national pride that comes about. Now, World War I was really not about 
high human ideals uh, and democracy, at least not from the European side. Now, President Woodrow Wilson, as we'll see uh, uh, in America, felt differently about the war. World War I, in fact, was, to borrow from my favorite television show, Seinfeld, a war about... A war about... Nothing. A war about nothing. Just like Seinfeld's show about nothing. Who, who, who watches Seinfeld? See, the number diminishes every year. When I first got here in 1998, every hand went up. A war about nothing, basically really a war for relatively trivial reasons. Not like, say, the American Civil War, or World War II, or even Vietnam, where ideals, even misplaced ideals, ideology, even misplaced ideology, uh, uh, was paramount. When a Serbian nationalist by the name of Gavrilo Princip assassinated the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, in June 1914, it set off a quick chain reaction that within a month drew in every European power. Now, I think we've already, I think it, it was Claire, you, you said that June 28, 1914 was the, uh, well, the assassination of, 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 uh, of, of Franz Ferdinand was the most important event uh, in American history. And I, I, I said that you were actually in, in a way, or in more than a way, right that it was not only the most important event, at least in my view, it was the most important day in the 20th century. And I have a long list of books to write, and I'm an American historian and not a, uh, not a European historian, but I've always wanted to write a book about that day, June 28, 1914. Not only because it is, the, in my view, the most important day in the 20th century, the day that caused World War I, and World War I caused set in motion a series of events that would lead to the Russian Revolution, that would lead to Stalinism and the rise of Joseph Stalin, that would lead to the rise of Adolf Hitler uh, uh, and Nazism, that would lead to the rise of Benito Mussolini, of fascism in, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in Italy, uh, that would lead to all sorts of changes in the Middle East, that would lead, of course, to the mass destruction of World War II, which in turn would lead to the Cold War. In other words, what World War I did is it set in motion all these forces that just changed world history in an irrevocable way. And how did World War I start? Well, this is the other reason that I'm interested in, 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 in this day. It started because of a chance series of events, a crazy series of events on one day involving an assassin and the man he wanted to assassinate, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, that played out in an almost impossible way. So the reason I'm interested in June 28, 1914 is not just because it's the most important day uh, in the 20th century, setting in motion all these forces that affect us today, but also because of the word contingency and the idea of contingency in history. What does contingency mean? Things depend on other things happening. And they don't have to happen the way they do, right? They depend on a series of events that precede them. One thing happens, and then another thing happens. But if that one thing doesn't happen, or happens in a different way, history goes off in another direction. In other words, when we read history, we have it as we, there's almost an unconscious assumption on our parts that things had to turn out the way they did, because that's the way they turned out. 
But that's not the way history works. History turns on a hinge often, and it could go off in many different directions. So all these things didn't have to happen. And I think that's an important lesson of history as well. And to illustrate that, let me just give you a brief summary of the crazy series of events that led to the death of Franz Ferdinand on June 28, 1914. And you'll see how contingent history is. To set it up briefly, Archduke Franz Ferdinand is the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary is a large empire in 1914. It's not just the countries of Austria and Hungary. It takes in uh, 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 what's now Czechoslovakia. It takes in parts of Poland. Uh, it takes in uh, what's now, uh, you know, the, the Yugoslavia, what used to be Yugoslavia. It takes in a lot of territory. But in 1914, it doesn't take in Serbia. Serbia is its own country, an independent country. But Serbia is very angry at Austria-Hungary because there are a lot of Serbs who still live in Austria-Hungary. They don't live in Serbia. And they're being persecuted and, uh, uh, and, and they want their independence. They probably want to become you know, part of Serbia, basically. Well, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who is the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, he doesn't care about any of this. He schedules a visit to Sarajevo, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, heavily, you know, heavily Serb, uh, 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 but part of the Austria-Hungarian Empire, for June 28, 1914. Now, why is this a stupid thing? It's a stupid thing, first of all, because the Serbs have decided that they want to assassinate him. Uh, and Sarajevo would be a good place to do it, uh, and that's where they're set up. And he pretty much has a good idea that that's going to happen. But it's also stupid because June 28th, apparently, is the anniversary of a great, or not so great, Serbian defeat in the 1300s, I think at the hands of the Muslims. But it's a day of mourning in Serbian culture. It would be like the king of Saudi Arabia deliberately scheduling a visit to New York City on September 11th or something. In other words, it's a stick in the eye of the Serbs. In other words, Archduke Franz Ferdinand says, I don't care. Uh, uh, I'm going to go wherever I want to go. So, the Serbs have a conspiracy and they're going to assassinate him. And one of them is Gavrilo Princip, who's a young man, he's either 17 or 18 years old, Serbian nationals. So the Serbs decide that they're going to stand on the route of his parade as he goes down the main street, Archduke Franz Ferdinand goes down the main street of, uh, of, of Sarajevo. And they set up there and he's going down the street in his car and he's with his wife and they throw a bomb at him. But the bomb doesn't hit him. The bomb hits a car in front of him, like one of his guards, one of his, you know, one of his entourage. And it blows up, doesn't kill anybody, but it does send a number of his people to the hospital. So now Franz Ferdinand is really pissed off. He's pissed off. He goes to City Hall where there's a reception, and he upbraids the mayor of Sarajevo. He says, I come here, and you're throwing bombs at me. This is ridiculous. Uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. I'm getting out of here. I'm leaving. Okay. But before I leave, I have to go to the hospital because I have to visit my subjects who have been hurt by uh, you know, your, your Serbian terrorist bombs. So he doesn't take the route that he's supposed to take out of Sarajevo, which would have taken him to safety. By this time, the Serbian assassins have broken up and gone their separate ways. Didn't work. You know, we, we took a shot at it. Didn't work. Let's have lunch. 
So Princip at this point is going into basically a delicatessen on a side street in Sarajevo. He's going to get a sub, you know. He's, he's hungry, you know. He's tried to assassinate the uh, heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary and it hasn't worked. So he's going to, you know, he's going to eat. Franz Ferdinand says, okay, we're getting out of here. But first I've got to go to the hospital. So there's another route to the hospital that they're supposed to take, which is sort of like over here. But nobody tells his driver that that's the new route that they're going to take. So the driver just takes the main route right out of town, which is the way they were supposed to go out of town, except now they're supposed to go to the hospital. So they go a number of blocks, and Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who wasn't the most pleasant guy in the world, you know, basically says to the driver, you moron, we're going in the wrong direction. So the driver tries to turn around. Now, there are many side streets he could have turned around in, but he made a right turn into a particular side street. And all the other cars follow him. He realizes he's made a wrong turn. So he tries to turn around. But the car in back of him, this is a narrow street, is blocking him. And at that moment, guess who comes out of the deli? It's Gavrilo Princip. He's bought his sandwich. He's ready to eat. Ten feet in front of him, boxed in by cars in front and behind him, is Archduke Franz Ferdinand. He is ten feet in front of him. He puts down his sub. He takes out his gun. He jumps up on the running board of the car, and he shoots Franz Ferdinand and his wife, and they die. Okay? Do you know how many things had to go wrong for Franz Ferdinand, for that to have happened. He could have been injured by the original bomb, in which case he would have been in the hospital and then out of there. He could have taken the regular route right out of town when he said, I'm getting out of town, and that would have been okay. He could have taken the side route, if his driver had heard the instructions properly, to the hospital. He could have taken the wrong route, but turned down another side street. And Princip could have been in the deli and said, listen, could you put a little more mayo on that sandwich? And that would have taken maybe two or three minutes, and by that time they would have untangled the mess on that street, and Franz Ferdinand would have been out of town. But none of those things happened. All these things happened in the way they happened, and World War I started, and that's the most important day in the 20th century. That's contingency. And that's something that's very important for students of history to remember. It didn't have to work out the way it did. The whole textbook that, I, you know, that, that you're reading, those events did not inevitably have to work out the way they did. And I think the Franz Ferdinand story, I think, is, is a very good explanation of that and illustration of that contingency. Now, Franz Ferdinand is dead. Austria-Hungary is very angry. And it declares war on Serbia, uh, because they blame Serbia for this, and the Serbians, the Serbs were, were behind this, uh, about a month later, at the very end uh, of July. Now, because of the system of interlocking alliances that I mentioned, uh, once Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia, all other European nations are forced into the war. Because under the terms of the alliances, for example, Germany was obligated to go to war if Austria-Hungary went to war. So once they declare war on Serbia, Germany is in. Russia is obligated to go to war if Serbia goes to war, because they're both Slavs. They have like a Slavic 
connection, ethnic connection uh, uh, to, the, to the Serbs. So once Serbia is declared war upon by Austria-Hungary, Russia is in. England has to go to war if Belgium, which is officially neutral, is invaded. And Germany does that. They invade Belgium because they want to get to France. So England is in the war, and of course France gets dragged in too, in a deadly apparatus that pulls in everyone. By 1914, by August 1914, it's Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Turkey in the Mideast arrayed against Great Britain, France, and Russia. And after a German offensive through Belgium and northern France just missed taking Paris and ending the war in just a month, the two sides settled down to a protracted, stalemated trench war that was by far the most brutal in human history up until this time. Thanks to defensive weapons like barbed wire, poison gas, machine guns, the opposing armies were frozen in place sometimes launching offensives over the trenches in which soldiers were mowed down like wheat, but mostly fighting it out from those trenches, stationary, and dying by the millions, from disease and especially from each other. Now, the casualties in World War I are mind-boggling. Even today, look at the numbers. 8.5 million people, soldiers, get killed in this war. That doesn't count civilians, uncounted numbers of civilians, but eight and a half million soldiers, two million Germans, 1.7 million Russians, 1.4 million French, 1.2 million Austro-Hungarians, 900,000 British, and 112,000 Americans, who, of course, got off relatively easy if 112,000 casualties, twice the number we lost in Vietnam, can be considered to be easy because of the late entry. We declared war in April 1917, but we didn't really have our troops over there uh, until the spring of 1918, and then the war ends in November 1918. An entire generation of young Europeans is wiped out. 20,000 English soldiers killed in one day in 1916 at the Battle of the Somme. We lost 58,000 in the entire Vietnam War, 20,000 dead in one day. 600,000 Germans died in one month-long battle, uh, the Battle of Verdun uh, in 1916 that took place over a, a period of months. 620,000 Americans died in the entire Civil War. This is one battle. In terms of the casualties, the analogy to this class would be, and there's like, I think, 37 or 35 or something like that registered for this class now. Uh, uh, 15 of you would be dead, 11 of you would be wounded, and of course, virtually everyone would know someone who was either killed uh, or wounded. In the great book, The Guns of August, by the great historian Barbara Tuckman, uh, uh, that's T-U-C-H-M-A-N, she wrote a book about the first month of World War I that just ended with the Germans just missing, taking Paris. I described that earlier. Uh, she writes that uh, uh, in her research, she went to the French version of West Point. Uh, uh, you know, they have a military academy, too. Uh, and as is the case with most of these military academies, uh, uh, in the chapel, uh, there are the names listed of the graduates of the military academy who have been killed uh, in various wars. So she goes in there, she says, you know, and, you know, there's, uh, I don't know, uh, 18, you know, 1890, and there's like, I don't know, 15 names. Uh, 1900, and there's, you know, uh, 17 names. 
Then she gets to 1914. All it says is the class of 1914. What that means is the entire, virtually the entire graduating class of the French version of West Point is killed in World War I, and most in the first three or four months of the war. That's how brutal this war was. And not surprisingly, the United States wants to keep out of this war. Woodrow Wilson, the president, uh, issues a neutrality proclamation at the start of World War I, but still engages in trade with Great Britain and with France. And the Anglo-Saxon heritage of the United States, which, you know, in common with Great Britain, causes uh, most Americans, or many Americans, to be sympathetic to the Allies, to Great Britain, France, uh, uh, and and Russia, and especially uh, to Great Britain. Also, Due to Great Britain's naval blockade of Germany, they blockade Germany at the start at the start of the war. American trade with Germany plummeted because the, you know they couldn't get through. Now Germany retaliated against Great Britain's blockade with submarine warfare, and Germany sank vessels carrying arms and food to Great Britain, even if those vessels were nominally neutral, even if they were passenger vessels, and even if they were carrying Americans got them into trouble. The major example of this is the sinking by the Germans, a German submarine, of the British passenger liner Lusitania, uh, which was sunk off the Irish coast in 1915 with American passengers aboard who died uh, uh, by that sub. And Americans were outraged by this. Sentiment in America turned sharply against Germany after this. Although, Germany was correct in this instance because the Lusitania, as we now know, was carrying armaments for Great Britain. It's one of the reasons why the passenger liner sank as quickly as it did. It sank in 15 minutes, uh, uh, largely because armaments below decks uh, were it themselves blew up because of the torpedo from uh, the sub. Now, this German submarine warfare against American ships would be the immediate cause of the United States' entry into the war uh, against Germany in April 1917 on the side of the Allies, uh, uh, Great Britain and France. Uh, uh, there were other reasons. Uh, first, there was Germany's secret Zimmerman telegram to Mexico in 1917, which the United States, they broke the code and they, uh, you know, they intercepted the telegram. This Zimmerman telegram from Germany promised the return of the territory that Mexico had lost to the United States during the Mexican War of 1846 to 1848, uh, including parts of Texas and California. If Mexico came into the war on the side of Germany. This put the final touches on the American resolve to punish Germany and enter the war. There was also, of course, the impact of United States trade and loans to Great Britain and France. There's an element of protecting your investment here. Now, once it entered the war in April 1917, uh, America, through the vision of the idealistic Woodrow Wilson, defined it as a war for democracy, for self-determination, and for freedom from political or economic tyranny. In other words, what Woodrow Wilson dreamed of for the world throughout his presidency, and what I described at the end of my last lecture, a world where American ideals democracy, self-determination, and American self-interest, free trade, capitalist economic expansion, American political leadership, 
were the same, where they coincided. And what was good for America was also good for the world, and where the painful choice of one or the other didn't have to be made. Now, Wilson articulated his democratic vision for the post-World War I world uh, in his famous 14 points, which he issued in January 1918. They featured a call for free trade, capitalist free trade, freedom of the seas, disarmament, an end to colonialism, self-determination for all peoples, and, most important of all, to Woodrow Wilson, the League of Nations, which would settle disputes between nations peacefully and protect weaker nations from stronger ones and generally uphold the principles of democracy and the rule of law. Wilson believed that the League of Nations had the potential to transform the world, and he resolved to fight for it to the bitter end. Now, as I mentioned, America's entry into the war brought with it a host of government agencies designed to facilitate wartime production, to manage labor relations, and to generally centralize the American economy. Among them were the War Industries Board, or WIB, which coordinated manufacturing among private firms and facilitated cooperation between the public sector and the private sector. With the incentive of high prices, industry made what the federal government wanted when it wanted it, because, you know, because of the, the incentive of these prices, of these profits, money talks. Another such agency was the Food Administration, which coordinated food production and distributed food in Europe. And we talked about Herbert Hoover uh, in, in relation to this. And still another was the National War Labor Board. The National War Labor Board, for the first time, gave labor representatives, in the person of Samuel Gompers, who was the president of the AFL, and we talked about him, a seat at the table as government, business, and unions work together to resolve labor disputes and keep the plants going, you know, keep production going during the war. And it didn't hurt labor that labor now, workers, were now relatively scarce in America. We talked about the scarcity issue earlier. The immigration cutoff at the start of the war, as you might imagine, World War I had a tremendous effect on European immigration to the United States. Uh, it prompted half a million blacks from the South to come north into industrial jobs. Uh, and World War I was just a good time uh, to be a worker. The number of unions doubled uh, between 1915 and 1920 in the United States. Unemployment, which was 8.5%, that's high, that's considerably higher than it is now, uh, in 1915 plummeted to only 1.2%, that's much lower than it is now, in 1918. So you go from 8.5% to 1.2% inside of three years. Now, as I said earlier, most of these central agencies disbanded at the end of the war, but they did set the precedent for similar agencies and similar instances of government economic planning uh, during the New Deal and throughout the rest of the 20th century. But, as I also said earlier, World War I brought out some of the worst instincts in Americans. The government's Committee on Public Information, which was headed by George Creel, launched a massive propaganda campaign designed to create what he called a single moral community in support of World War I, using magazines, posters, pamphlets, 
speeches from favorite Amer famous Americans, many of which anticipated the techniques of modern mass advertising that we are so familiar with today. We read an example of this kind of propaganda uh, uh, for today with the uh, lurid account of a mythic uh, pillaging uh, German army on the loose in, of all places, New Jersey. God help them. They probably get stuck in traffic on the New Jersey turnpike. But obviously, in a nation with so many nationalities, including 2.3 million Germans and 2.3 Austro-Hungarians, as well as so many political opponents, including socialists, uh, wobblies, and other radicals, who opposed World War I as a capitalist plot, there was bound to be much less unanimity on the war than people like George Creel, or Woodrow Wilson for that matter, desired. And the result was a wave of repression against anyone who even remotely criticized America's conduct in the war. The Espionage, Sabotage, and Sedition Acts of 1917 and 1918 made it illegal not only to speak against the war, but against the flag, the Constitution, or the military generally. These laws were used to jail war opponents from the Socialist Party, and from the IWW, which essentially was put out of business by this law. There was also a crackdown on foreigners and immigrants who were associated with anti-war sentiment. There were immigration restriction laws passed and 100% Americanism campaigns, or what was known as 100% Americanism campaigns initiated in many states to force ethnic Americans to give up their own languages and customs and become really 100% American. And, perhaps worst of all, Germans, not surprisingly, were treated the most harshly. An anti-German hysteria swept the nation. Germans were followed through the streets by jeering mobs. A few were even lynched. And many German words were taken temporarily out of the English language, like sauerkraut. The words for that was liberty cabbage, Echoes of freedom fries a few years ago. Thus, we can see the irony of a war ostensibly being fought for human freedom abroad, creating a restriction of those freedoms at home. But even this, and this distressed Wilson, even this was worth it to Wilson, if the war could only be won, and if he could have the opportunity to shape the peace and the post-World War I world, according to the principles that he had enunciated in the 14 points. Democracy, self-determination, free trade, all guaranteed by a strong League of Nations. But Wilson was to be disappointed, bitterly so, by the peace that actually transpired after, thanks to crucial American military assistance, the Allies finally pre prevailed in World War I. Uh, forcing Germany to an armistice on November 11, 1918. The victorious Allied leaders, uh, Clemenceau of France and Lloyd George of Great Britain, cynically chopped Wilson's post-war plans to pieces at the negotiations that led to the Treaty of Versailles that formally ended World War I in 1919. Wilson got virtually none of the things that he wanted. No free trade agreements, no self-determination except in some parts of Europe. No end to colonialism. No disarmament except for Germany, which was humiliated by punitive political, military, and economic restrictions 
It made World War II a virtual certainty before the ink was even dry on the agreement to end World War I. As a sop, Great Britain and France agreed to a League of Nations, however, and Wilson placed all of his hopes on it. He returned to the United States in 1919, determined to ram the peace treaty, Treaty of Versailles, through Congress at all costs. But here, too, Wilson failed. Never the most compromising of men personally, his constant disagreements with the faculty at Princeton University when he was president there from 1902 to 1910 had forced him into the political arena because he was about to be fired as Princeton president. Uh, he became governor of New Jersey in 1912 and uh, 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 president of the United States, excuse me, in 1910 and then president in, in 1912. Uh, uh, so uh, he, he basically washed out as the president of Princeton, so his next step was to become president of the United States. Uh, Wilson locked horns with a group of isolationist senators led by the Republican Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, and you saw a picture of him in the reading for today. Lodge insisted that the League of Nations would destroy American sovereignty by dragging it into future European wars against its will. Lodge also questioned the wisdom of any American foreign policy based on abstract principles of democracy uh, and not coldly calculated self-interest. So if Wilson was more of an idealist, Lodge was pure self-interest. Wilson, refusing to give an inch on this matter, took his case to the people in a whirlwind speaking tour in 1919 that cost him his health and almost his life as he suffered a stroke in October 1919, an event that basically ended his political career and his presidency right there. With Wilson secluded in the White House, uh, paralyzed on one side of his body, the Treaty of Versailles, and with it the League of Nations, was defeated by the Senate in March 1920. The League of Nations itself, a mere shell of an institution without United States participation, limped on ineffectually for the next 25 years before disbanding in 1945, fittingly, at the conclusion of the war, it had been famously unable to prevent World War II. But, Versailles Treaty or not, the war had ended for the United States, and in 1919, the nation began to suffer the fallout and dislocation that came when a wartime society attempts to convert to a peacetime society. Employers moved quickly to win back many of the concessions they had made to labor in the interest of winning the war, cracking down on unions, cutting wages. And workers responded with an unprecedented series of strikes. In 1919, 20% of the American workforce, which is about 4 million workers, went out on strike. And perhaps symbolic of this was the great U.S. steel strike of 1919, which was for an uh, eight-hour day and for union recognition, which was crushed by the employers using strike breakers who, in an, in an attempt to uh, foment racial animosity, uh, most of these strike breakers were, uh, were black. Most of the U.S. steel workers were white. The employers also used ethnic divisions uh, to set the strikers against each other. There were literally dozens of ethnic uh, uh, nationalities represented by the strikers. And employers during this U.S. steel strike also used uh, red baiting or communist baiting to defeat it. Now, the anti-red or anti-radical hysteria of the war years 
carried over to the post-war years, not just during this U.S. steel strike, uh, but also in what became known as the Red Scare, a reaction to a supposed but never proven radical plot led by foreigners to take over the country. And this featured more sedition laws, more 100% Americanization campaigns, and the so-called Palmer Raids, which were authorized by Wilson's Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer, in which some 6,000 suspected radicals were arrested in their homes and in some cases deported, although few cases of actual conspiracies against the government were actually proved. By 1920, then, America was divided politically with an anti-foreigner, anti-radical, even anti-liberal wave of repression sweeping the nation. With the failure of the League of Nations, Wilson's dream of U.S. internationalism was temporarily at least stalled, although this would change in two decades as another world war loomed. And with the wartime agencies disbanding, America appeared to be rejecting the progressive vision of central control of the economy, although this too would soon change with the advent of the Great Depression in 1929, and we'll talk about that. But politically, socially, and culturally divided, though America may have been in 1920, in the all-important economic sphere, remember Bill Clinton's famous 1992 uh, campaign slogan, it's the economy, stupid. In the e economic sphere, the United States was poised to wield world leadership. It was, after all, the only major nation to emerge from World War I with no debt, no damage to its industrial infrastructure, no physical devastation, the war had obviously been fought somewhere else, and reasonable military personnel losses. America was, in fact, owed millions by Great Britain, France, and other war participants, and as a creditor nation, was in a position to assume global financial leadership. Overseas nations, many hurt by the war, were demanding American manufactured goods, and American factories were gearing up for expanded production. And at home, an American population, weary of the sacrifices of the war, were looking for a return to normal life, to normalcy, not a real word, as the genial, bumbling Warren G. Harding, successful Republican presidential candidate in 1920, so famously put it. And Americans were ready to buy their share of consumer products, appliances, radios, and especially automobiles from American industry. So whatever their other divisions, America and Americans were ready in 1920 for a decade of prosperity, industrial expansion, high wages, low unemployment, and fun. And next Friday, we'll see how Americans had that fun, among other things, as we discuss the decade that, perhaps until the 1960s, was the most associated with hedonism and self-fulfillment, the so-called Roaring Twenties.